Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 22. I'm your host, Otis Gyrie. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing five stories for you about terrifying testaments, devilish disappearances, selfish saviors, caustic companions, and horrific hosts. Each of tonight's tales were written by competitors in the 2019 Evil Idol voice acting competition, hosted by our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. The competition, now in its third round, began in October, and features 50 contestants vying for this year's championship crown, with 90 stellar performances to enjoy. If you enjoy the stories in tonight's program, please show your support for the competitors and the contest by visiting the official Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel and casting your vote on the remaining entries to help decide who will walk away with this year's grand prize. Just search 
Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube on any search engine, or visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Evil Idol link on the navigation bar to see a current roster, contestant profiles, and links to all of the performances thus far. Thanks for your support. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first three terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. This show is about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale tonight comes to us from author and voice talent Benjamin James. In it, we'll meet a man who didn't believe in ghosts. Until, that is, the ghosts made it clear they believe in him. Without further ado, I present to you Raymond's Will. Hello. My name's Raymond Dawes. This recording should be considered my last will and testament. It's intended for whomever takes possession of this house at 12874 North Prior Road. After setting aside some money for family and other concerns, I should have approximately $300,000 left to my name, give or take, depending on how much longer I live, I suppose. That should be about three times the appraised value of the house, and it will be given to you once certain services have been rendered. The law firm of Little and Dobbs in town will have documents confirming this arrangement, so that you understand how vital it is that this request is honored and faithfully executed, I need to explain some things. There's nothing particularly special about me. I'm just a middle-aged guy. However, I have never been what you'd call a people person. It's not that I dislike other people, for the most part. It's that I just don't identify with others very easily. As a kid, I didn't get excited about the things the other kids did. I didn't have fun the same way that they did. And now, as an adult, I still don't understand why people care about most of the things that people care about. I find small talk annoying, which invariably makes me come off mean or grumpy. I've kind of always been a grumpy old man, really, even before I started getting old. But, like any grumpy old man, I also got lonely when everyone did what I asked and left me alone. Surprisingly, or maybe not, I always have been a staunch believer in the supernatural, ghosts in particular. There was never a time when I didn't believe, and these paranormal encounters have always met the majority of my companionship needs. I don't feel one way or the other about all the God and Satan drivel, but when it comes to ghosts, I have no doubts whatsoever. I grew up catching glimpses of them 
or hearing them just around a corner. I used to think that it was my blind faith that allowed me to perceive them where other people didn't, but to be honest, that was probably just illusion. I think everyone catches a glimpse from time to time, but for non-believers, those glimpses get explained away or ignored and forgotten. Not so for me. Having the opportunity to witness the dead and trying to interact with them has been my very favorite part of being alive. That's where this house comes in. It was around the time that I started making some real money at my boring accounting firm that I also started to give up on the idea of traditional family life. As you may have guessed, I've never been good at dating. Eventually, I started looking for a house just for me. Before long, a realtor led me here, and I fell in love with it immediately. I loved the things about it that would turn most people off. I loved how it's out in the middle of nowhere. I loved that it hadn't been occupied for decades, as the last resident died during World War II. It was well built, and still in good condition, though there was a thick layer of dust and cobwebs everywhere. It was fantastic. The best part about the place was Mary. She was the woman who died here, and the place resonated with her. I felt her presence the first time the realtor ushered me in the front door, and I've felt it ever since. I was amazed and enchanted by how consistent she was. Spirits are fleeting, in my experience, gone almost before you know they're there. Not so here with Mary. Even when I couldn't hear or see her, it was like the house itself was somehow overwhelmingly content. I quickly began researching her life, and I was fascinated. Mary Erickson was a young woman who married her high school sweetheart Bill, as so many did back then. They were madly in love. Bill built the house for Mary himself in anticipation of their wedding day. They moved in that night, preferring to honeymoon in their dream home. They lived there blissfully for eight months when Bill was drafted by the Navy and called away to war. Tragically, Mary died unexpectedly in her sleep only a few months after Bill shipped out, though it's believed that it happened peacefully. She was found tucked into bed with a letter from Bill in her hand and a small, tranquil smile on her lips. The suspected cause was an undetected heart defect. In a strange way, it was a blessing. Only two weeks later, before he could possibly have received news of her death, Bill's ship was blown to Kingdom Come in the South Pacific. He died instantly. So they both died believing that the best was yet to come, knowing they just had to hold on for a while, and then they'd be together and happy once again forever. And I think that's the best feeling, really. When you know something wonderful is coming, and you only have to wait for it. Once it arrives, you might begin to find flaws with it, or get bored, and take it for granted. But when it's on its way, it's still this perfect thing. That's how Mary felt when she died, and all these years later, 
It was like time had stopped for her, and she maintained that wonderful feeling. She could be a little somber sometimes, as people get when the one they love is away, but mostly when I spotted her reading a book or looking out the window, she just seemed content to wait. I heard her singing faintly or playing a song on the piano sometimes, and I could tell that the song itself was a memory. It brought him back to her. I envied them that, but it was a happy envy, if that makes sense. It occurred to me that I probably would not have enjoyed her company nearly as much if she was alive, if she were anything like most of the living. As a ghost, though, she was the perfect companion. She never asked me for anything. I didn't have to make small talk. She was just there, and she kept my loneliness at bay. When I bought the place, I set about restoring it to its former glory. I made a point of sticking with the original decor as much as possible, cleaning and polishing and reinforcing as needed, never actually replacing anything if I could avoid it. I got the piano tuned. I could swear I felt her approval when I did these things. In all honesty, it was the best relationship I could have hoped for. Mary and I coexisted in our refurbished home for three happy years. Then, something terrible happened to a dear member of my family, my oldest niece. Was done to her, actually. I was unaware until our next family get-together, though I knew that she had a brief stay in the hospital. I could tell something was very wrong. She was emotional, tense, and jumpy, not at all like her usual self. She made it clear that she didn't want to talk about whatever it was, but I felt compelled to find out. I've watched her grow into a lovely young woman, and while I'm unable to have a traditionally close relationship with her, I care for her deeply. If there was anything I could do to remove this cloud from over her head, I was damn well going to do it. So I made quiet inquiries with her closest friends. Before long, I had a good enough idea what happened and exactly who was responsible. A guy named Steve, Stephen Miller. At that point, I was unsure as to what to do with this information. I've never been what you call a man of action. Never even got into any fights unless you count a minor scuffle in grade school. Never messed around with the law, and I had no desire to. But I knew that I would never feel right doing nothing. At the same time, I've never been quick to judge people, even if I believe they've done something terrible. Decent people hurt each other and then regret it enough to never do it again. A schizophrenic can break from reality and kill his best friend. Alcoholics do things that would shame them forever, and then they don't even remember the next day. Given the abhorrent nature of Steve's attack on my niece, however, it seemed unlikely that he would be repentant. I needed to know for sure, though. Found out where he liked to hang out, dressed myself down a little to fit Steve's hole-in-the-wall bar scene, and I went fishing. In retrospect, it seems really stupid, like, there are so many different bad endings to that plan. 
but it actually worked somehow. I got to know him kind of, like the way you get to know a cat. I bellied up to the bar, a couple stools down from the dickwad, ordered a beer, then sat and pretended to watch the game, waiting for him to do something, anything at all. Eventually, he said something stupid, so I replied with something stupid. We were off to the races. A few beers later, we were sitting side by side, and I was comfortable enough to tell him my stories. I thought up a couple of fake exploits that were basically about me being a piece of shit to women. I made them vague enough to not be disprovable, but with a few specific details to make them convincing. The idea was to see how he would react to someone bragging about stuff like that, and he did not disappoint. He smiled. I guess you could call it a smile, though it was more of a stupid smirk, and then he won up me. Several times. I could tell that his stories were the real deal, and probably only the tip of the iceberg. It was like being a terrible person was his playground. Job. As he drunkenly regaled me with his loathsome stories, my uncertainty vanished. I felt nausea squirming in my gut coldest rage of my life. He had no remorse. He'd continue to do these things as long as the world allowed it. I realized my facade was beginning to crack. I wasn't ready for that, so I made an excuse and said good night. As I drove home, I knew that I was going to murder him. I'm guessing a lot of people who know me or who think they know me, would be shocked by that. The truth is, I had no qualms about it at all. My only concern was being caught, and I was certain I had the perfect plan to ensure that didn't happen. In less than a week, I was ready. I made several more mercifully brief visits to the bar and yucked it up with Steve. He displayed more disgusting behavior and ate up my fawning deference act like it was slop time at the hog farm. I felt ill and mentally drained every time, but I knew that I'd gained his trust. Steve loved having a sidekick. I had a pre-dug hole in my backyard and a tarp laid across my kitchen floor. I put up some fresh paint and left a few tools out so the tarp wouldn't seem out of place. Then I met up with Steve. He was already half in a bag. Excellent. I told him I was hosting a pregame party and invited him out to help me set up some elaborate drinking games to impress all the hot girls who'd be attending. I don't have to impress girls, he slurred, but he followed me out of the bar anyway. When we got to my place in our separate vehicles, I invited him in, and he followed me into the kitchen. I got him a beer from the fridge. He popped the top and took a long gulp. Pulled my twenty-two caliber pistol out of my waistband and shot him twice in the chest. At first, he only registered shock. I shouted that this was retribution for what he'd done to my family and all the other women. Then he turned to me, enraged. 
He threw the beer can aside and rushed me. His hands were at my throat, and he slammed me against the fridge. I pushed the gun directly against his chest and shot him again. He was much larger than me, and the rage made him inhumanly strong as it crushed my windpipe. For a moment I feared that I'd lose consciousness. Then, thankfully, the blood loss and organ damage overcame him, and his hands went slack. He teetered, trying to breathe, and coughed blood in my face. He crashed to the floor, but his expression did not change. I stood there, gasping and gagging, waiting for him to die. It took a long time. I kept expecting him to become fearful or something, as it became clear that he was going to die, but he never did. He glared at me from the floor and clenched his hands, choking snarls escaping from his bloodied mouth, flailing uselessly at my feet. Finally, his body stilled. Honestly, it seemed like it had all worked out as well as I could have hoped. I wrangled his cooling body onto the tarp and wrapped him up as neatly as I could. I paused at the back door to listen for anyone coming down the gravel road just in case. Hearing nothing... I dragged him out to the hole, threw him in, and packed the loose dirt back on top. I changed into workout clothes, drove his car into Watson Lake, and jogged a mile and a half back home. Throughout the ordeal, I never saw another soul. I'd scoured the kitchen late into the night. Steve had managed to leak all over the place, despite the tarp. It was after midnight when I heard the sound of Mary's footsteps, they were her steps, to be sure, but not like I had ever heard them before. It made me shiver even before I could make any sense of it. They were running, running frantically. A piercing sob ripped through the house. She was terrified. Then I heard heavy footsteps. Deliberate, getting heavier with each step, following her down the upstairs hallway. The last step hit a sledgehammer, and she screamed unlike anything I've ever heard. And then there was silence. I stood in the kitchen, frozen in a cold sweat. After an interminable amount of time, I snapped out of it and crept upstairs. There was nothing there to be seen or heard. I could sense a presence, but it was nothing like the peaceful Mary aura it exuded. It was bad was really, really bad. It was a venomous blackness with teeth. I couldn't stand feeling it all around me in that room another moment and fled. I did not sleep that night. The next day I called in sick to my mundane job and started looking into anything I could find about paranormal activities. Hauntings, evil spirits, poltergeist, anything that could help me. What had been an idle hobby became full-time fervent study. The next night I dug up Steve's body, chained some old dumbbells to him, and threw him into the lake to join his car. But when I got back to the house, I knew that the damage had not been undone. I continued to study with every free moment, incantations and rituals of every kind. I looked up exorcists. They're not as easy to find these days, but there are still a few out there. I persuaded a sympathetic priest to come over 
I asked him if he was bound to tell police about someone confessing to a crime. He told me he was obligated to tell them if someone was planning a crime, but if it was already done, that he was bound to secrecy. I told him everything that had happened, and he asked me if I wanted to ask the Lord's forgiveness. I told him that I wasn't sorry for killing him. I was only sorry for doing it here. He seemed taken aback at that. But after a moment of quiet reflection, he said that he was still willing to help me. We prayed together for a lengthy interval, and he did all the things he knew to do to eradicate evil and bless my home. He wished me good luck as we parted at the front door, which seemed a little strange coming from a priest, and then he left. That night I heard Steve again. He was laughing at me maniacally. It was obvious what he thought about the priest's efforts. That was 14 years ago now. I've made no progress. He has delighted in torturing Mary, and I, every single night since. Before all this happened, I would hope to see or hear something new from Mary every day. Finding her in a new place, doing something I didn't know she did, was the best feeling. She took such simple joy in everything that she did. It was contagious. In the years since that godforsaken night, I've heard a lot of new things, and they've all been nightmare-inducing. Attacks her every night, brutally. I've seen her scream a thousand different ways. I've seen her stumbling naked down the hall, eyes blackened and blood darkening her long auburn hair. I've heard her choking and miserable wails and begging. I feel constant despair. Experiencing this is bad enough, but the fact that I know her misery is on me is unbearable. In my haste to do what I needed to do to avenge the horrific attack on my niece and to stop that monster, I invited the monster into her home, her sanctuary, and I've trapped her with it. There's nothing more important to me than a clean conscience and an end to this hell. However, it has become clear to me that what I must do to absolve myself is not something I can do while I'm alive. I can't be certain that I can do it as a dead man, but it's my only remaining hope. I don't have the will to end my own life. I've made a few pathetic attempts but I just couldn't force myself to follow through. I do seem to be aging more quickly now, though, and that's fine with me. I've taken steps to ensure that whenever I die, however I die, it will be here, as I no longer leave. I took early retirement, became a recluse in my home, and cut off regular contact with my family. I've never told them what I'd done and don't want them to ever see me this way. I pray that when I die, I'll be able to remain anchored here and that I'll be strong enough to defend her and to restore the peace that I stole from her. This is where you come in. I don't know what the state of the house will be in when you find it. The vibe, it'll emanate. But if you have an open mind and an open heart, it will not take long for you to perceive it for yourself. 
If it is, as I hope, a place of peace and contentedness again, then please just take good care of it and enjoy it, or sell it to some happy old couple who can appreciate it as I did once. If I have failed, if this place is still a place of suffering, then I must demand that you burn this house to the ground. Spare nothing. See to it that every timber is ash, and turn the earth up over it. If she cannot exist here in peace, then she must be set free to whatever the next step for her soul will be. I don't know what that is, but without a doubt, it's better than this tortured existence. I owe her at least that much. In truth, I owe her a great deal more. But if that is the best I can do, then so be it. For your faithful assistance in this matter, in addition to the monetary rewards, you will have my sincere and eternal gratitude. Yours respectfully, Raymond Dawes. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed Raymond's Will by author Benjamin James as performed by yours truly. Benjamin was featured as voice talent in the first round of the 2019 Evil Idol competition and you can check out his performance of that self-authored tale for free anytime. Though voting has concluded on his entry and he was eliminated in round one, listeners have great things to say about his work and I'm sure he'd appreciate your feedback. Up next, we've got a second terrifying tale for you. This one from author and voice talent, Jay Corvus. In it, a wealthy gentleman embroiled in a child custody dispute with his ex-wife Details how he spared no expense in the handling of his son's sudden kidnapping. They say money can't buy happiness, but can it buy someone's safe return? Stay tuned and find out. Without further ado, I present to you Best Investment. Being the divorced father of a kid can be a challenging and rewarding job all on its own, especially when you're running your own major business. I'll be honest, I never wanted to have kids in the first place, and the whole married thing 
was originally just to better appeal to future and current business associates. But as you probably pieced together by now, that didn't quite work out. My former wife must have believed that by getting off the pill and getting knocked up, she could save our sour marriage. But honestly, all she did was prolong the inevitable. Long story short, she got half my assets and money while I got to keep our son. He's a chip off the old block. According to his nanny, he has the biggest collection of trading cards than any of the other kids in his friend's group. He's incredibly competitive when it comes to games and competitions, and he's well-liked by the majority of the staff. His private tutors tell me that he's quite intelligent and is at least a year ahead of any student they've ever met. His music teachers seem to believe they found a natural musical protege with the talent to learn just about any instrument he gets his hands on. Yes, sir. My little Sammy boy is quite the kid indeed, but a man such as myself doesn't always have the time to play catch with his son. I can't make it to parent-teacher meetings when I have important overseas meetings to get to. I can't watch him play with other kids when he goes to the local public park, when I'm having lunch with potential new investors, and I can't attend his musical recitals when I need to entertain guests in order to continue mutually beneficial partnerships. On top of all this, the boy's mother has been a constant thorn in my side as well. If she knew how very little time I actually spend with the boy, she would probably have a much better case to try and take him away from me. However, courts don't always look at that sort of thing. All they see is a rich and dedicated father that has afforded his son every opportunity to flourish into the best person he can possibly be. I've given my son the absolute best life and opportunities money can buy, and it helps to have a few judges in your pocket to make that point abundantly clear. But I have to admit that this sort of thing does wear on me after several years of fighting with my ex-wife. It really is true what they say about the love of a mother and her child. That woman will not give me any peace. And it really does get tiresome to keep up appearances as the caring father of a gifted child. Not to mention expensive. Her lawyers are constantly looking for new avenues of approach to try and gain any sliver of custody of Samuel. He just turned 12 last month, and he's also begun to ask more and more about his mother as well. If there's one thing I've learned in business, it's that the nagging and persistent little problems can be the ones to bring you down. Anyone with eyes can see that my son is the real chink in my armor, and that point was well illustrated the day Samuel was kidnapped from the local park he enjoys frequenting. Naturally, the bodyguards did all they could to keep him out of harm's way. They are the best that money can buy, after all. But there's only so much they can do without causing harm to the surrounding children and the innocent children in the area. Authorities were called immediately, and federal agents soon got involved. 
Eventually, I received the ransom note and a package in the mail with instructions to hand over $10 million in cash. In the package, we found my son's ear and a thumb drive with the digital video of the masked assailants cutting it from his head. Naturally, as a concerned and eager father, I complied with their demands and immediately got the money together. My ex-wife was informed of the emergency, but strictly asked not to interfere. The money was going to be delivered to a waiting vehicle in the warehouse district of the city. Really, a haven for the worst of the worst. Threats to torture or even kill my son were issued if police showed up. Fortunately, the FBI were using a bag with a built-in tracking device that would help find the kidnappers after we recovered my son. The day of the trade-off, everything went like clockwork. I arrived to deliver the money. A black SUV was parked between two warehouses. A masked man pointed a gun at me and had me drop the money bag 50 feet from him before I was instructed to back off. He took the bag and left a note. As he instructed, I counted at 100 before retrieving the note with instructions on where to find my son. Immediately, FBI agents were already tracking the money. The note led police and investigators to a shallow grave. As it turns out, my son was likely executed soon after they removed his ear. Later that night, the money was tracked down and located at the local post office. Someone had boxed it up and intended to mail it off to a very specific address, out of state, a property under my ex-wife's name. Her fingerprints and DNA were found all over that package. That woman had done everything she could to cause me grief during the past decade of my life. Not surprising, the authorities found a planner with my son's schedule in it. She knew the exact times he would be in the local park. Police further found journals where she expressed very specific and gruesome things she wished to do to me. Very Lorena Bobbitt stuff. There was no shortage of disdain and hate when it came to the subject of her ex-husband. She pleaded ignorance and innocence to all the charges being brought against her, but with all the evidence and motive found at her home and on the package, the odds were stacked against her. Hell hath no fury and all that jazz after all. Her guilt was only further confirmed when she was found hanging by her bunk in her cozy little prison cell. She had ripped strips of her own mattress fabric to fasten a noose. Really quite clever if you think about it. I have to admit... It did cost me a small fortune to orchestrate the whole thing. When the divorce went through, despite me having the better team of lawyers, she somehow still managed to take half of what I own. My response was to take full custody of our, at the time, two-year-old brat. The one thing I knew she truly seemed to care about, and ensure she never got to see him again. The drawback to this is the fact that the little shit serves no other purpose. The nanny I hired to watch over him is truly an unneeded expense. Their private tutors are a small fortune all on their own. The music instructors charge more than some investments I make.
The private bodyguards have made enough to retire early because of me, and the constant letters and phone calls from an angry ex-wife that refuses to adhere to the rules of a restraining order have caused me more stress than a failed major investment. But this $10 million investment, though costly, is very much worth it. It wasn't hard to pin all of this on Evelyn. I already knew she would have proof that she hated me, and that much is obvious. The security detail that watched over Sam reported seeing her at the park, watching Sam from a distance. All I had to do was spend $1 million on a few low-level thugs with BB guns to take the kid on the day she usually doesn't show. The rest of the money went into the bodyguard's retirement funds. If there's a second thing business has taught me, it's that silence is not golden. It's money green. You see, not only did I remove that annoying bitch and useless rug rat from my life, but I also improved my image. There's no better means of attracting business and improving your public image than assuming the part of a grieving single parent. Oh, and in case you're wondering, yes, my wife did indeed hang herself. I didn't pay for an assassin. It wasn't hard to get her to do that when I paid one of the prison guards uh, to show her the full video of Sam's execution. You see, the feds only saw the shortened and heavily edited version that I wanted them to see. The guard told me Evelyn broke just as I knew she would. The moment the camera panned out and revealed me as the person slicing off Sam's ear, then smiling as I used the same knife to slit his throat. I hope you enjoyed Best Investment by author Jay Corvus, as performed by yours truly. Jay, like Benjamin James, is a competitor in 2019's Evil Idol voice acting competition, and as of the time of the release of this episode, he's still giving it his all and is active in the third round with a modern-day take on Frankenstein that he also wrote and performed. So, if you enjoyed his twist in Best Investment, do check him and his three Evil Idol performances out on Chilling Tales' YouTube channel today and cast your vote while there's still time. Up next, we've got a third and final taste of frightening fiction for you from author and voice talent Luis Bermudez. In this sci-fi-inspired story, it's the end of the world. But it's not a pandemic these folks are worried about. It's their own neighbors. And without further ado, I present to you, I Saved the World. You have to listen to me. This isn't right. You can't do this. You can't let this happen. Okay, hold on. Let me, let me try again. Something different this time. Calmer. Explain what's happening. Okay, my name is Nick, and as of right now, I am the last person on Earth. They called them quiet rooms, and after the wave came, the remaining cities across the globe pulled together to gather their remaining resources 
in highly defensible areas. They called them hub cities, and the wealthiest of society lived closest to the hub, and thus had their pick of the earth's remaining resources. This, of course, did not last long. Ten years of feeding the lower southern United States nothing but rice and potatoes saw an end to the class system in messy fashion. After the collapse of uh, society, there was a great ravaging, and for a while it looked like we would eat ourselves to death, or worse, cannibalize each other. But then, under new leadership, we began consolidating. From their perspective, not all mouths were worth the food they would eat. It started with the prisons, first death row and the mentally insane, and then to those serving life, and not long after, committing a crime worthy of jail time all but assured your consolidation. And this is when the quiet rooms came in. No one knows when the law was passed or who made the final decision, but suddenly underground facilities began to crop up in all major cities and in every little town. After several years of quiet construction, small-sized garage buildings began to crop up wherever the construction had ended, and some families received enlistment papers. The necessary draft, they called it. We always joked later and called it what it really was, a necessary evil. That was until my papers came, and I became one of the delivery men. Our job was simple. Wait for orders to arrive and retrieve someone identified for scheduled consolidation, and then take them to a quiet room. To resist these orders and the lawful determination of the remaining world's courts was a jailable offense, leading ultimately to immediate consolidation. The first week was the worst. Every morning I put on my uniform, I holstered my regulation bolas, and I patrolled the borders of our small town until I was relieved from my post. The times always changed, the hours were never consistent, and I spent every waking minute wondering, praying, and hoping I wouldn't get the call. And I didn't for a long time. I continued to enjoy the hefty government check I received each month, enjoyed the ability to purchase groceries for my family without worrying of budgeting, enjoyed the ability to get my daughter new clothes, I enjoyed the peace it instilled in me. And soon, I began to become complacent, even trusting of my government. I began to trust that the only people being taken were those who truly did not deserve to stay. They'd gone months without ever making me respond to a single order for retrieval. Maybe it would never come. And if it did, well, maybe it was for good reason. And then the day came when I received my first call. My first order for retrieval. I went to a home, one I didn't recognize, and perhaps stupidly, knocked on the door. People began to pour out of their homes at the sight of me, not approaching, but watching in terror, disgust, and oddly enough, curiosity. No one knew what to expect. None of us had ever witnessed this happen before, myself included. 
and then the door opened, and I saw my package. An older man, hard in the face, with an intense stare, and a jagged set of knuckles wrapped around the side of his entryway, steadying himself up to look at me. He was old, but strong, and he looked ready, poised to strike, but he didn't. He just looked at me and said, Well, I suppose that's it then. Time to go. I swallowed the little amount of courage I had available in my mouth and tried to moisten my vocal cords to say, in what I had hoped would be a determined voice, Yes, unfortunately, I believe you are to come with me immediately, sir. I stammered at the end, still feeling like some respect should be present at the least. I watched his face as he processed the information I had just laid at his feet, and then glanced out toward the people surrounding us. He and I both realized in that moment, I think, that no one was willing to stop this. They all stood by and watched. They knew what I was here to do, that it was necessary, and the remaining courts had their reasons. I held my hand out and directed the man to come outside of his home, and he followed suit after a brief moment of hesitation. He didn't bother to look behind him, even close his door, as we walked side by side with me, down the steps of his porch. He walked in silence for some time, through throngs of people, none of them doing anything to stop me or him. Parents running into their homes with their children, others letting them watch, pointing as they told their children what their fates could be if they didn't behave and wash behind their ears like Mommy said. And I, in a strange way, felt proud. Proud of the example I was setting. Horrified, surely. But still hopeful that there was a reason this man did not deserve to live. And I writhed in these emotions for the duration of our walk to the quiet room. Until finally, we arrived at that small building just on the outside of town. The old man paused then, now fear was clearly present in his mind. He looked at me in desperation and said, almost pleading, Why me? What'd I do? I was perplexed. I assumed he would know, or at the very least have some idea. When he saw that I didn't, he looked horribly sad and said, I just don't get it. I know my medications. They're expensive but I always pay for them. I need them to help me sleep. The things I've done for this country, the people I hurt, in other parts of the world, all in the name of my home, I never enjoyed them. They stayed with me even when everyone else left me. So why, why me? Why not you or anyone else? What did I do? He yelled, and people began to walk over to get a better look. The old man was riling them up, getting them excited as he began to lose control of his composure. He began to look out at them as he spoke now, saying, You can't let this happen. This isn't right. Who decides who goes? I started to shake. 
I knew what was about to happen. I knew what was coming if I didn't stop him from inciting a riot. I knew what awaited everyone in this town if they tried to fight the system put in place. And to my family. Stop resisting. I'll be forced to use... Force. I stammered out. At this, the old man did not back away, but instead took a step closer before I screamed, Are you really going to be this selfish? Can you really not see how dangerous this is for everyone here? What do you think happens to them if you don't go? Or what might happen to me and my family if I don't deliver you? Did you ever think that maybe you need to go so the rest of us can stay? And at that everyone stopped, including the old man. And when he saw that he had lost them, he looked down in a deep, hollow sadness and turned again toward the doors of the quiet room. We walked slowly together to the doors where he and I scanned our IDs until the doors opened and revealed a small, completely bare chamber with no windows, doors, or otherwise other defining features. A negative space, filled with darkness and blank walls and floors. The old man looked at me and I looked at him. We were both terrified. Then he began to walk forward, almost at his own surprise. He stopped in the center of the small chamber and just stared back at me. Nothing happened as we stared at each other. A hole didn't open up into the bottomless pit in the earth, and gas didn't begin to flood the chamber. Nothing happened until finally I began to close the door. The old man's eyes widened, but he did not stop me. Instead, he stood watching me as I closed the door. The last thing I remember seeing was his one eye staring back at me in the darkness. One steely gray eye. And then the doors were closed, and I went home. Nothing else, no more pomp and circumstances. The checks kept coming and eventually started getting larger and I kept patrolling. People seemed at ease suddenly, as if a weight had been lifted. Someone had been chosen. No one else need worry any longer. And I, I was their hero. The one who protected them from the old man's fate. And then the second call came. And it was like the first time all over again. Everyone held their breath as I made my way to my package's address. When I knocked on the door this time, there was an audible yelp from the inside as a woman cried out in surprise and terror, likely. And then the door opened to a man in his thirties, like me, with a young boy next to him. The sound of his wife crying behind him in the living room echoed into the entryway. He looked up at me, up and down, as if to ask me what I was doing there. Then he said, Who? Who are you here for? Then I thought for a moment. Nothing I received ever made it clear that I was supposed to be picking up one person or another, just the address. I looked at him as I came to that realization, and he came to it with me. He grabbed a suitcase next to the doorway and called his wife over. 
tussling the son's hair with a smile on his face. Come along, my love. We have a trip to go on. Did you prepare your bag like we talked about? He said to his wife from over his shoulder. I heard her choke, but then come around the corner, putting her hair behind her ears as she openly wept, holding a small case in her right hand. They walked out together, holding the hand of their son, who looked near catatonic. He had no clue what was happening, or perhaps knew exactly what was coming, but wasn't able in his youth to process it. We walked together to the quiet room with no interruptions like before. We scanned our IDs and the doors opened, and inside, where I expected to see bones or some rotted, bloated carcass with some foul creature lurched over it, there was nothing. The same emptiness as before, just an empty room. The family looked at each other, confused, possibly relieved. And then slowly, with the husband leading the way, nearly dragging his wife in with him, stepped into the room and began to hold her in his arms along with his son as he stared out at me. And again, I closed the door and remembered the look on his face as the door shut and all was quiet once more. This was the procedure for a long time. We would go a few months of quiet, peaceful rumination, counting our blessings and appreciating the time we had with our families. I began to feel a sense of real purpose in my duty as a delivery man. I was helping people live fulfilled lives, making them safe from the dangers of those that are hiding in the shadows, waiting to be consolidated. And he was there to get the job done and provide that sense of security to his family and the people of his town. He was its protector, and it was his to protect. And soon the man began to receive more calls, and he would always respond in the dead of night or at the crack of dawn. And soon he began to deliver his packages to their quiet rooms twice a day, every day, for weeks and soon he began to notice the way the town was flourishing. The remaining people now left behind, small in number though they were, led extravagant and lavish lives. He himself had enough food in his fridge to have a barbecue every day for the next month. Homes became larger, taking up the empty space where their neighbors had once been. A source of stable income became a pastime instead of a necessity, most people having enough in their savings to live like this for the rest of their days. And each day, after it began to slow down significantly, everyone else, much like Nick, began to hope that the following day would see someone else leaving. He could see it in their eyes every day he did his patrols. They would watch him and silently urge him, to get rid of someone, anyone. Just go out and knock on someone's door and get rid of them. Consolidate them so that those left could have more. He saw it. He knew it. But Nick was a man of principle. He was not a vigilante, handing out justice wherever he saw fit. 
He was a man of law and order, and he would await his orders. And soon, as he knew it would, they began to come in. His neighbors dwindled down slowly to ten, and then in one evening to seven, and a month later down to three, until one day, almost without the hero realizing, he and his neighbors were the only ones left. And he smiled and waited, knowing one day the order would come that he need not rush. But then one season came, and so did the other, and the order never came. And the hero waited, but still no call came. No order was given, and each day his neighbor began to look at him in hatred. The hero began to fear for his life, for the safety of his property, and his family. He would watch his neighbor each night, making it known that he was in his sight, that he would not be caught unaware. But after the fourth night of not sleeping, the hero realized he needed to do something. Something had to give. He made the call. He walked to his neighbor's home. He knocked on the door. And he looked him in the eye and said, It was his time to be delivered. The neighbor looked at the hero. His eyes were filled with anger, streaming with tears. His face turned down into a hideous grimace. The hero hated him. And so he demanded that he go with him to be delivered. And the neighbor complied with the orders given to him. They walked together, the neighbor seething in the hero's shadow, until they arrived at the quiet room, where the hero once again opened the doors for what would be his final delivery. The neighbor looked at the hero, looked behind him, back at the city, and said, Is this right? The hero said nothing. He knew the neighbor, already knew the answer. And when he didn't respond, the neighbor stepped inside. And the hero closed the doors. It was quiet. And every day, the hero would wake and do his patrols. His family, distant and fearful. And despite knowing there was no one else to deliver, the hero always waited for another call to come waited for them to send him somewhere far away, in some other part of the world, where others needed delivering. He knew one day the call would come, as it always had before. And right he was, but only partially. Because while he did get the call, the address of the family that he was to have delivered was that of his own. He slowly made his way down the stairs, looked his wife in the eye. He had forgotten her name, but she cried now. Cried as she realized that he was in his uniform, his bolas in his hand. His children sit at the table crying as well. He hadn't realized how grown they'd become, or for that matter, remembered that there were in fact two of them. His wife began to weep and beg, she fell to her knees and thrashed her fists against the floor as she asked the hero for what she believed was mercy. But the only mercy the hero believed in now was the mercy 
granted by those who were ordered to be consolidated, so that the rest of the world could go on living peacefully. And this was the final test, a test to show he was worthy of putting the world before his own happiness, to prove what he always knew, that he was a hero. And he used this fact to give him strength as he bound his family together using his bolas and dragged them out to the quiet room where he would complete his duty. Weeping now, the hero pulled his family as they thrashed and cried out against the restraints that bound their arms and legs together into the lightless chamber. They called out to him, called him a name he did not remember, but he had to push them out. He knew what he was doing was right, no matter how much it hurt. And with what was left of his strength, he pushed, and with a solid effort, sealed the doors in front of him and screamed out in agony as he lost everything he loved. He wept for a long time, until finally he began to come to terms with his sacrifice. He stood up and began to walk away from the quiet room to await his next orders, when suddenly there was a thrum beneath his feet. He turned to look behind him, and what he saw confused and rattled him. Behind the quiet room, the ground had split open and began to reveal a strange, obsidian-like material protruding up from the broken earth. The shape of it was strangely uniform, and it was accompanied by a loud whining sound as the ground beneath my feet began to rumble even more violently. And then, slowly at first, but then rapidly, the quiet room began to rise. I watched in awe as the structure began to reveal itself, hidden deep beneath the earth, and rise high above my head height, before revealing clear glass. And inside, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. In a brightly lit white room, I could see my family. They were looking at me with hatred in their eyes, just like the people I had delivered, and they were standing in a large living space with verdant and lush greenery surrounding every corner, like a localized terrarium. But then it wasn't just them. It was others, too. People I had delivered. I had sent them to be consolidated. And they all looked at me with hatred, and slowly I began to realize the structure was continuing to rise, now out of the ground and into the air. I looked in terror as I began to understand that I was being left behind. And then I saw him, the old man, his steely gray eyes looking back at me. I flew into a rage. I screamed as the ship began to lift into the air, taking the remaining survivors of this planet to some other distant, inhabitable planet that could support them. I did not scream as I watched in silence as other ships began to lift into the skyline from towns and cities hundreds of miles away from me as what remained of humanity fled the dying world that they had abandoned me in. And then I sat in silence until no more lights were visible from my meager view of the skyline. And I sat still, very still. I'm the hero, 
I saved the world. I hope you enjoyed I Saved the World by author Luis Bermudez, as performed by yours truly. Luis, like Jake Corvus, is an active competitor in this year's Evil Idol competition, and you can check out his own performance of I Saved the World in the second round of the contest, as well as two other incredible stories in the other two rounds. Luis and I both thank you for your support. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you have enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference, and it would mean a lot to us. Again, you can hear more of tonight's featured authors and their dulcet tones in the 2019 Evil Idol voice acting competition, which features 90 jaw-dropping performances from 50 different contestants. Just search Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube on any search engine, or visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Evil Idol link on the navigation bar to see a current roster, contestant profiles, and links to all of the performances thus far. Thanks again for your support. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyrie channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Gyrie. Until next week... Stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. 
Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.